Hello, I'm standing on top of Munnithsillin, about a 15 minute walk from home. It's the highest point in Carmarthenshire at 284 metres and is distinguished by its twin masts which make it distinctive to spot on the horizon. And uh, I'm standing close to two wind turbines that are certainly turning at a fair pace as the wind gets up uh, in the evening sunshine. Now from here I get a 360 degree view, a genuine 360 degree view, which includes Llethley and Cum Gwendraith in the foreground, then the Pembrokeshire coast, the Preselles, the Brecon Beacons, Worms Head on Gower and on a good day I can even see Lundy off the North Devon coast. The mountain, well, it's got its place in history. It was where 3,000 people met during the Rebecca riots, a meeting that would lead eventually to a petition to the Queen, that's Victoria, and an eventual end to the conflict. The riots, well, they weren't about the tolls people were being charged to walk on the roads of West Wales. I think much more about the economic conditions that people were living in in, in rural West Wales. And they wanted change. Well, in this series of podcasts, change is once again a theme that runs through all of the conversations. The change is a transformation in the way we think about, talk about, invest in and use our forests and woodlands and the timber that they produce. I'm David Hedges. I've been managing the Homegrown Homes Project for Wood Knowledge Wales. We completed its first phase at the end of March and we're now embarking on a, a new phase to implement the learning and move from research into action. We're working with a wide range of stakeholders on the journey to radically reduce the amount of carbon that we're producing in creating net zero homes and communities. And this series of podcasts captures the thoughts, ideas, frustration, determination and passion of people for which trees and timber are an important part of their work and for some their life. From the top of the mountain I don't see many trees in the landscape apart from some wooded valleys, trees in the hedgerows and the odd plantation in the distance the view is mostly of fields and pasture. This slice of West Wales is, is agricultural, it's a place where we once mined coal to power the industrial economy. The fields support sheep and cattle and the crops that feed them. After all, we are a sheep, beef and a dairy nation. The haze over Port Talbot, which I can also see from here, reminds me that for some, Wales is also a steel nation. Now, wouldn't it be great if we could also be a forest nation? One transformed by the planting of trees and the creation of a wood culture where people and communities could derive an economic interest in timber where we could naturally capture and store carbon and build many more high-performance, zero-carbon homes from timber. Is it such a mad idea? This series again features two people in conversation. All recorded remotely during the pandemic, we had the occasional technical gremlin, but these didn't distract us from the task at hand. In this podcast, I talked to Tom Barnes of Vast and Timber, one of the UK's largest and most established hardwood sawmills in Wiltshire, and Andrew Bronwyn of Chartered Foresters and Surveyors Bronwyn and Abbey. 
They both have a relationship with trees and timber. Luckily, they aren't shy in telling me what they make of society's relationship with both and where change might come from. As usual, I asked them both to introduce themselves, starting with Tom, whose work is in the blood, isn't it? <laughs> uh, yes, I suppose it is in, in the blood. Um, I guess I, I have a, a, a slightly, maybe a strange uh, history in that my, my education, my degree was in environmental sciences, um, but I've spent uh, most of my, well, all of my working life um, working in the timber industry, not, not all of it in the family business. I did work for six years for what is now the Sangaban Group. Um, but during that time, I did take on a lot of the responsibilities around uh, the, the environmental issues related to the company. Um, but the last 20 years or so, I have been back with, with my family business, which is a, a, a sawmilling company that focuses almost uniquely on, on cutting British timber, mostly hardwoods and some specialist softwoods. What I find really interesting and what I spend quite a bit of my time doing is trying to think of ways to, to innovate with British wood and to find ways to match the wood we grow in this country with the demands in, particularly in construction and, and to some degree in, in furniture making. So we spend quite a lot of time trying to, to create products that are right for the market, but, but specifically using wood that grows locally to us. Um, and, and hopefully I'll get a chance a bit later on to talk a bit about the, the, the brimstone products that, that are really one of the, the, the biggest results from that work. Andrew, tell us a bit about yourself. Andrew Bronwyn, um, I'm a chartered surveyor, chartered forester, and I've um, uh, worked in Wales uh, and the Midlands really for... Uh, over 30 years. Um, I run a forest, a forest management company with offices in Wales and the Midlands. Um, and we uh, are involved in the management of mostly forestry on the traditional estates, but um, some uh, more institutional ownership as well. Um, and we do, we do everything from advising on management through to carrying out work programs, including woodland creation um, and quite a lot of timber harvesting. And um, we have supplied and do supply timber for uh, Tom's uh, mill in um, in form of oak, uh, ash, western red cedar, um, that kind of thing. I'm conscious that we're recording this podcast in a in a time of real uncertainty. Hopefully, we're coming to the end of a of a pandemic. Uh, we're coming to terms, I guess, with um, the implications of having left the uh, European community. But, but actually, what's been the impact for for you and your businesses? Uh, you know, the last the last year. What's been the impact of of uh, looming Brexit and and COVID, Tom? Well, certainly, last year was a real roller coaster for us. Um... Obviously, when COVID hit early in the year, like many businesses, we shut down and, and we stayed closed for three weeks. Then we decided that we could restart in a relatively safe way because of the sort of business that we are. We we're fairly open. A lot of what we do is outdoors. And, you know, largely construction carried on. Um, and, and then really the, the, the second half of the year was quite amazing in that it was, it's the busiest we've ever been. Um, which which was in some ways quite hard to keep up with. 
and and I do I think it's it, it's it's luck really that that I'm in the industry that I'm in and, and associated with construction and it's just it's luck that the way that COVID landed that construction was one of those industries that managed to carry on whereas so many others obviously haven't been able to so in that respect I think we're very lucky um, the confluence of Brexit and COVID really has been quite daunting, I have to say. We, we don't do a great deal of business with the continent because most of what we produce is, is from this country. But we do do some, and I have to say it, it's been an utter nightmare. I mean, the, the, the effort it's taken to move things backwards and forwards across the border has been phenomenal. And, and the increase in paperwork and bureaucracy is just... Off the, off, the, off the scale, unbelievable. And so certainly that, I have to say, the first couple of months of this year, my time has largely been taken up with dealing with COVID and trying to keep the place safe, trying to keep our, our staff and our customers safe and trying to deal with Brexit. And that, that has largely sucked my time away. So yeah, it, it's been difficult, but we are, we're getting on top of both of them now, and there's obviously light at the end of the tunnel for where COVID's concerned, and um, and hopefully over this year Brexit, the sort of bureaucracy that's attached itself to it will, will start to dissipate a bit, and things will get a bit easier. That's positive, uh, Andrew. Has it has it been a similar case of for you of being busy? Yes, um, and I think um, as Thomas suggested, you know, we feel very privileged, really. I think in that. Um, because our industry is predominantly based outside and it's relatively few people involved, we've been able to uh, carry on um, safely and productively. Um, and there have been some issues about just keeping in contact with colleagues in within within the um, you know within our business because you know, if if you're having to work from home and so on. Um, uh, that can be a little bit more complicated, but frankly, nowhere near as complicated as many other industries. So we do feel very lucky in that way. Um, in terms of the impact of COVID and, and, and Brexit, yes, you know, a certain amount of nervousness about how all, all that might go. Um, uh, and rather, um, well, perhaps not counterintuitively, but rather, the Brexit, the Brexit deal or the Brexit situation has probably played to our advantage rather than our disadvantage for the kind of reasons that Tom was alluding to with the complications of importing timber, mm. which has put a lot more um, demand for domestic timber. And we've seen um, a huge demand, increase in demand and to some extent price, uh, which has been a great help to us and, and our clients. So... We've been very busy. Um, it looks like that's going to continue. The only thing that I am nervous about is how much volatility there is in the marketplace uh, because of COVID and the, and the impact on the economy and because of this uncertainty about the Brexit rules and regulations and what that brings in the future and whether we will see um, swings, uh, particularly in the timber market, um, which may could make our lives a little bit more difficult going forward. Hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about um, 
some of those issues in this discussion. Uh, there, there's the bigger agenda, I suppose, isn't there, of climate change that seems to be growing in uh, importance, in, in recognition, in understanding. To what extent um, would you say climate change impacts on the work that you do uh, in a practical sense? Tom, is that is that a question you feel you can answer? Yeah, I, I, I can. And I actually just want to just jump back um, one step as well, um, and, and it's linked with climate change. But what I have noticed that um, Brexit and COVID and climate change together have, have has done and has started to do is really focus people's minds on the resilience of supply chains. Mm. Now, you know, there, there was there was there was issues around toilet roll in supermarkets and things. We all know about that. But actually, within our industry. Um, there were there were big problems uh, with getting basic constructional timbers in during the early stages of COVID. Um, just you know your, your normal carcassing timbers that would have come from abroad. There's been all sorts of problems with shipping timber from other parts of the world, including North America and Canada and, and other areas um, related to COVID and other other global issues and. I've noticed that this has really started to turn up on the agenda of, of clients um, and at the, at the end of the supply chain and also the merchants supplying them. And I'm hearing more and more people talk about uh, the supply chain and, and trying to get a handle on where their products are coming from. So I've spoken to uh, clients who, who, you know, big construction, big building owner clients who, who are starting to really look at every single part of the building, whether it's for retrofit or whether it's for new build, and try and understand where these products are coming from. And actually, in many cases, being quite surprised at how far they've traveled. And so starting, and what, is it, what this is doing, which is, which is good for, for, I think, this country, is, is starting to try and work out whether some of these things can be provided for closer to home. Now, as Andrew said, you know, that, that can lead to, to some quite significant swings in prices, which isn't particularly good. But I think in the long run, it, it could be a positive thing if we can harness it. Because clearly, if, if, we, if we come to the conclusion we can't provide these things closer to home, then, then you know, people have to accept that supply chains are, are longer. But there, there are many of these things that we can supply closer to home. And, and timber, to some extent, is obviously one of them. And we'll talk, I guess, a bit later on about how that can be done. Um, on climate change, more specifically, um, th there's, there's negatives and positives. I think, you know, clearly there are, are big negative consequences. It, and for me, they manifest themselves mainly through disease. Mm. Um, I mean, it, it is fairly depressing when you start to look through the list of wood species we have in these countries and diseases and pests and pathogens that are associated with them. You know, I do start to think, well, you know, what on earth are we going to be processing in 10 years, 20 years time? Um, you know, already in, in my career, I've watched elm all but disappear from, from the list of commercial species that we can process in the process of watching ash disappear, which is, you know, it's really upsetting because it's it's such a wonderful species it grows so well in this country it's prolific you, you know you don't have to do anything to get ash to grow it wants to grow um and, and there in front of our eyes we're watching it just disappear you know we, we've got problems with larch which is another great species we've got problems with oak you've got problems with chestnut so this this 
you know, it, it, it's associated, as I understand it, with climate change because the slight changes or increases in temperature allow these pests and pathogens to move, and also associated with global movement of, of product. However, on, on the upside, I think the recognition of climate change and its impacts is really leading to a resurgence of interest in biomaterials and, and wood being one of them, and materials that have a negligible carbon impact. Mm. And, and you know, that puts wood front and centre when it comes to, to considering how we are going to build in the future. And I think that's, you know, that's a positive thing and that's something that I, you know, I, I hold on to. Andrew, what, what's your take on this, the, the impact of climate change? So two things. Firstly, in terms of how we're managing our woods and what we're planting, um, it's something that we're thinking about the whole time. The diseases that Tom refers to, um, certainly climate will be having an impact on those. I think the global movement of, of plants that you alluded to is the bigger factor about how these pests and diseases being introduced into this country in the first place because there is such a massive... Uh, global market now with things just moving around and, and although we're an, an island state we haven't really um, exercised the advantages of, of, of that. We'll talk later about how we, what we plant and, uh, and where we plant it in order to create more resilience uh, and therefore combat or, or help alleviate uh, climate change. The other, the other th big factor really is just the massive increase in interest from uh, landowners and investors because of the uh, issues around carbon and the environmental social governance factors now that people are having and businesses are having to consider. The problem is that the demand and the supply are completely out of kilter. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, forestry is a very small industry. Um, the amount of land that gets bought and sold each year is relatively small. As the demand has rocketed, really, in, in the last few years, um, there isn't enough for people to buy. So that's having an impact on price. If you think that last well, two or three years ago, the, the whole forestry market uh, in the UK was something like about 100 10 million a year. I think last year it might have been 200 million. You've got wealthy individuals, institutional buyers with large amounts of money looking for a home and there isn't a home to be found. So that's definitely causing an issue but businesses uh, are looking to offset or inset their carbon. Um, uh, so for example I have a client who runs a fairly big construction industry uh, business, building business. He wants to be able to buy and, and plant trees on land so that he can inset that potential carbon into his business so that he can tell his customers he's heading towards net zero um, uh, in terms of how he's, how he's offering his services to them. And there's, there's plenty of people around like that. The problem is... Uh, where are we going to find the, the land and the forests for people to invest in? And Andrew, are your clients interested in what gets planted and how what you plant is managed? Or, or do they think, well, Andrew can deal with all of that. I just want a safe place to put my funds. 
um, and know that there's some certainty about getting a, a decent return. Yeah, I think there's I think there's mixed knowledge and experience around that. And inevitably, you know, this is a new area for a lot of investors. They simply don't know. Mm. Um, my view on it is that they should be looking to spread their risk as much as they can in terms of their investment. So if you're planting solely for carbon, you would maximize your return there by planting 100% broadleaves on a, on a non-thin 100-year uh, regime. That doesn't do anything really for, for you at all in terms of producing timber mm. and therefore um, potentially having a, an income from the timber in, in the future. Um, so I think there is a there is a need for more understanding, more knowledge about the kind of nuances of the investment and and how that plays out, and that's uh, I think will become you know a lot of these investors really understand business once they they understand the principles of what they're trying to achieve and you talk it through with them they will make those decisions, um, but they may not have that knowledge in the first place. And it's a challenge, isn't it, to get people to think about the notion of productive woodland. So the idea that we plant trees not for their own sake, but because we might actually want to derive a product from the timber that's created when we fell them. That seems to be an argument that divides lots of people. Yeah, it, 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 the industry does feel quite binary in some ways. So you have people like myself uh, uh, and others who are very keen on producing commercial timber that we can use, uh, make a return on. Uh, and then you have a sector uh, which is very keen on simply on biodiversity and the two don't come together very well. I think that is that is true. I think there is a often a preference for, for broadleaves against conifers. You know, the old mantra of broadleaves good, con conifers bad. You know, it's very simplistic, but it is there. Why is that? I think that's partly to do with some poor design post-war with a lot of conifer plantations. Uh, I think it's partly to do with the success of the message coming out of some of the NGOs. Government policy itself, actually, over the last 30 years has, has pushed the broadleaf agenda rather than the conifer agenda. But I think it is all very risky if you see it in that binary way. It needs to be much more nuanced than that. Uh, and I think, I think certainly in the in the commercial sector, you know, we accept that uh, it isn't going to all, all be about production. It is about that mix of uh, production, landscape, biodiversity, and the public goods issue that we'll probably talk about a bit later on. Tom, do you share Andrew's view? I do share his view, and I think it's 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 probably a correct characterization of the current situation. Although I have witnessed, um, having tuned in to a few online conferences in the past year, and I, I kind of feel that, that the two sides might be moving together a bit because, you know, that those organisations that would that would uh, would generally be pushing for biodiversity and carbon capture, they they do still talk about the need to use more wood and they talk about the need to grow more wood but there is a little bit of you know not in our backyard not in our woodland as though you know someone else needs to do that 
but I do feel that there might be a bit of a coming together. And I think if it can be looked at at more of a landscape level, in more of an organised fashion, where there is evidence that all of these concerns are being considered and, and it's being planned in that way, so that there are, you know, there are areas for, that, that, are, that are solely managed for biodiversity or carbon capture. There are areas that are, are managed for uh, timber production. There are areas that are managed for ground nesting birds. You know, all of these concerns are valid and they all need to be considered. But I think there's, there's also an acceptance there's a lot of overlap. It's not, it's, it's not the case that just because you're planting for commercial timber, you're not going to have any biodiversity, you're not going to capture any carbon, and there won't be any ground nesting birds. You know, th there is overlap, but quite clearly there needs to be, there needs to be planning at a landscape level. There needs to be buy-in um, from the local communities as to what those priorities are. And then it needs to be looked at at a national level. I have to say, I, I, I do get phenomenally annoyed. There, there is still very much this belief that, and, and a you know, mistrust of commercial woodland, that it's often, you know, it's often characterised as deforestation. I mean, it upsets me when my, my six-year-old son comes home from school and announces that I'm effectively killing the planet because we're cutting down trees, because he's watched a film about deforestation and, and um, you know, orangutans in, in, in Borneo or Sumatra. And I try and explain to him that they are two very different things. But, you know, this is something that, that you know, he's brought back from school. Now, this, this is this kind of view, maybe not at that extreme level, but it is held out in the general public. And you only have to look, as I did through um, the, the, the Forestry Commission surveys of woodland users, and you can see over the years that, that people increasingly hold the view that they want woodland to be protected for nature, and they want nature to be allowed to take its course. You know, people see woodlands as, as a sort of museum piece that has to be looked after and kept in its, in its current form, and any kind of a change is bad. And I think there are organisations out there that we won't name in this podcast, but do kind of give credence to that view. And I think it's everyone's responsibility to educate the public and educate children that woodlands are a, a, a living, breathing thing. And you know we have to live with them, and they and they do have to be productive. If you look back historically, the woodlands that we have now are those that were deemed to be productive, and they were productive historically. The woodlands that were not productive, either for industry or for sport, have been grubbed out and have disappeared. So. For the long-term protection of woodlands, I believe it's very important to make them productive. It's all very well in the short term to say, well, the government's got grants coming up for public good and this and that and for carbon capture, but we all know that public policy changes very, very quickly. So can we really guarantee that in 10, 15, 20 years time, that those schemes are still gonna be in the place, still paying out to landowners that have woodland? Would it not be safer to have those grants on one side, but also to have commercial income built into woodland creation, woodland management, so there is a, a, a long-term income built in that that landowner can, can rely on, and then reduce or any future desires to change that woodland potentially to some other kind of land use? So I think, I think it's really important to, to, to deal with this disconnect. And I think you could, you could also describe it as, 
as a lack of woodland culture. You know, people were so divorced from woodlands. We have so few trees in this country compared to others, like Scandinavia, France, and Germany, and North America. The people have actually really lost contact with woodlands, and we don't have that culture, and, and very much see it as, 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 a, as an entity that's to be visited and viewed like, much like you would paintings in a museum. But we need to try and get that culture back where people understand that woodlands are living, breathing, productive things. Wow. Whose role is it, uh, Tom, to deal with that particular issue of, of culture? Is it, is it a responsibility that is shared by lots of different organisations, do you think? I, very much so. Yeah, and I, I, I think I think it is partly a government role, but there are plenty of organisations out there trying to fulfil that role. Um, you know, I think of, of organisations like the Silverwood Foundation. Um, I think there are other organisations out there, um, and you can edit these names out if you wish, but um, like the Woodland Trust, like the National Trust, who I think also have a duty to educate their members as to how important woodlands are and what woodland management actually involves. And be honest about the fact that, that part of the process is felling trees. And so I think, yes, and, and I think, you know, also schools and, um, and, and, you know, and there's some great forest schools out there that, that uh, coordinate with, with schools to teach children about woodland culture. So I think, yes, it, it, it's responsibility. I mean, it is the responsibility of, of, of our trade as well and, and forestry. But unfortunately, you know, the timber industry is never going to be the most trusted source of information when it comes to the best way to manage woodland. I think you've, you've made the comparison with farming, Tom. Isn't there something about the language we tend to use as well? Often when we talk about growing trees for timber, we talk about commercial activity, whereas you don't tend to talk about farming and use the word commercial in the same kind of way. But farmers need to make a living, don't they, out of what they do with their land? They, they do. And, and, and interestingly, I was listening to one of your previous podcasts with, uh, with, with Joe Ahara, uh, who I think I think said something similar in in that you you know you, you would never expect a farmer to manage their land and have no or not harvest the crops and have no income from it. It just would be unthinkable. But we accept a landscape of huge open fields. We understand we need it because we need food. But in the same way, you know, the disconnect is that there seems to be a fairly wide understanding now that we need wood to build with. And I think most people know that wood comes from trees, but we seem to want to avoid or ignore the bit where we take the trees down to extract the wood from it. And my point is that, you know, you, you, there's only two ways we can get wood for building. We either grow it here or we import it, and we offshore all of our responsibilities for producing that timber. Now, to me, that's not responsible. You know, we, we will always need to import a good chunk of the timber because we use so much of it. I mean, we, you know, everyone's heard the statistic that we're the second biggest importer of wood in the world behind China. So we're always going to need to import wood, but we ought to really be trying our absolute best to produce as much wood as we can, as locally as we can to where it's used. That is the responsible and the sensible thing to do. So, you know, we just, it, it, it's such an obvious connection I think, but, but one that, we, that needs to be really reinforced and um, discussed so that people understand it. So when, 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 you, know, when you walk in, I, mean, I, I was up in Savanac Woods last weekend and um, lovely mixture of broadleaf and conifer, some huge towering Douglas firs, and it's, it's a stunning woodland. 
But there's quite a lot of management work going on at the moment. There's, there's some logs by roadsides, some logs that have been felled. And yes, it, it, it's not, you know, where, where the conifers have been taken down, it's not the prettiest scene when it's just happened. But then, you know, five years later where the regrowth is coming through, it, you know, it, it, it's a nice scene again. But this is just something in the same way that when you see a field ploughed back to bare earth again, which is also not particularly pretty to look at, you accept that's part of the farming cycle. Andrew, do you encounter these arguments in the work that you do? It's quite interesting, actually, with uh, woodland creation particularly. So in Wales, when we're putting forward a woodland creation scheme, we have to consult with stakeholders, and that will include neighbours to the proposed planting. Some of those attitudes that we experience are quite extraordinary, actually. And that attitude of, we don't like conifers, is very prevalent. We come across it the whole time. And when we try and present the arguments, as Tom has just articulated, around you know second biggest timber importer in the world, uh, looking to use a more carbon-friendly product in the future, we need to grow more of our own, it really falls on deaf ears. People are very resistant to hearing that. And, you know, I suppose it is that that problem that we see across society in, in many forms. It's the same with house building, isn't it? Yes, we need more houses, but please not here. It's the same with the woods. Yes, we need more timber, but please don't plant it there. I think government has a much greater role to play in dealing with some with some of those issues. It sits on the fence, the Forestry Commission, I'm afraid, and, and I would put the same argument for NRW in Wales, sits on the fence far too much. It needs to engage in this quite difficult debate, uh, and it doesn't want to. It wants to take the easiest line of resistance. I think there's there's quite a lot of apprehension within government about the power of the NGOs, uh, they often don't want to be seen to be in opposition to um, in the environmentally uh, environmental part of the sector. You know, they don't want to be seen to be suggesting that they might be decreasing biodiversity, even though that may not be the case. So they tend to take the, the, the line of least resistance, and that can see a lot of decent planting schemes hit the buffers, actually. What about the mainstream media? Do they have a responsibility, do you think, to present the argument? Yeah, I mean, obviously one would like to think that's the case, but I think it's much more about we have a responsibility as a sector to be presenting a case. Um, I mean, if we're not very good at that and others are better, that's probably our fault, isn't it? Um, And we need to get better at it. Then it's a problem of how much resource do we have to devote to that when we're actually you know, trying to make a living out of growing and managing forests. But, you know, I suppose the agricultural sector has the same has the same problem. And, you know, they have a very powerful lobby in the NFU. You know, they're on the press the whole time, in the press and on the media the whole time, and presenting their case. I think we need to do the same. Uh, but I do think government needs to be more ready to compromise more ready to accept that there's going to be pluses and minuses to all these different situations and really help the commercial sector more than they have have in recent years. We're going to see farmers becoming more and more interested in planting trees, though, aren't we? So will, will those arguments begin to change over time? We are seeing farmers interested in planting trees now. And I think 
either side of the Welsh-English border, we're seeing different things going on. So in Wales, there is a lot of demand. Uh, we have a lot of land which you, know, you might describe as marginal for, for um, agricultural production. And certainly when the agricultural subsidies reduce or, and or disappear, that make that will make that land uneconomic and, and for farming. And many, many landowners are recognizing that and are wanting to plant. But they need, you know, if you're a, a farmer, you need cash flow. Yeah. So the grants are important to help you with that. And that's where government needs to step in to help pump prime this land use change. In Wales, money is short. And on top of that, we've got a regulator who, you know, as, I've, as I was talking about earlier, can often be quite antagonistic against uh, commercial forestry because on the marginal land, um, there are often environmental considerations because by definition, that's the sort of land it is. Therefore, again, some quite tricky uh, compromises have to be made and they're not willing to make them. In England, I think it's really more of a question of availability of land. I think land is just short for planting and I, I really don't know where it's going to come from um, beyond small-scale areas um, on farms or um, land holdings. Um, there are areas, certainly in the north of England, uh, where I think more land will be available. But we need to see a much more level playing field between agriculture and forestry. In the past, we've seen all the vast majority of the public money going into the agricultural sector, which has resulted in you know, inflated land prices, a kind of prevalence towards agriculture and, and, and not towards forestry. And that that may change. But I think I think it's going to be a land land availability that's a big issue in England. When we when we look at this, you know, where people are looking to plant and what they're planting, if you see new planting going on in England, it, it often is small areas of broadleaves in plastic tree shelters. And you just think, how does that work? I mean, it's fine if you want to do little bits and bobs for amenity or, or, or shooting or something, it isn't going to contribute to our timber demand going forward. And the other the other, you know, big problem which again gets ignored by um all of those who who promote the broadleaf agenda is the fact that the deer populations are at an unprecedented high, which makes uh, planting broadleaves very expensive. And of course you know, that old problem that we're not on top of the squirrels by a million miles. So what do we plant productively with broadleaves that isn't going to be, you know, require an awful lot of protection against the deer and isn't going to get damaged by the squirrels going, going forward in the future? And we haven't solved that problem. And I was rather unnerved recently when we were having a discussion with some senior management in the Forestry Commission recently about restocking on uh, felled ash areas actually and you know so senior people in the in the commission were telling me and other forest managers that squirrels damage conifers as much as they damage broadleaves and you just think do you really believe that you know that level of ignorance if you like within our public body that advises on forestry is quite is quite alarming and do they believe that, or is that just a you know a, a, a prejudice that they're putting forward? I don't know. <laughs> Go on, Tom. I was I was just going to just jump in there, um, although I didn't have a great deal to say on, on the actual land available, but um, certainly 
just to sort of reinforce what Andrew said, you know, when, when I look around our area here in Wiltshire, and, and, and there has been some tree planting going on, but the, the quality of it, you know, and I'm no forester, but I can see the quality of it is, is really poor. You know, it's very much amenity planting. It's coming out of the plastic tubes and then sprouting like a flower because the tops have been chewed off them. You know, tr- trees that clearly don't want to be where they are there's no hope of them ever growing into anything useful and, and it's not just about growing timber trees you know they're, they're a lot of them you, they're never going to grow in they're never going to absorb the carbon as people assume that every tree will and i think this, this really for me plays into one of the big issues which is that we we we're looking at this in a very kind of elementary fashion. It, it's, you know, we talk about tree planting and how many millions of trees can we get in the ground? And, and, and the government loves to talk about these basic numbers, um, as do other organizations. But, you know, a tree is not, a tr- is not just a tree. You know, there are trees that will, will grow into large carbon absorbing things that, 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 you know, can then be used for other purposes later on and, and make, you know, really impressive woodlands for, for public access and, and, and so on. And, and there are trees that are just going to end up being stunted little bushes that aren't going to achieve any of the things that people think they will. And as far as I can tell, certainly in the south of England and talking to, to, to foresters such as Andrew, most of what has been created in the last 20, 30 years in England, certainly lowland England, has been exactly that. It's amenity planting. And just to go back to some of our previous points, um, you know, about uh, mainstream media and about organisations, we seem to be stuck at the amenity planting level. You know, whenever there is a piece of mainstream media, and, 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 and last year there was on the PM programme, BBC, you know, Radio 4, they were going to do a little piece on woodlands and trees every day. And I, I had great hopes that, you know, this is, a, this is an intellectual programme. They were going to dig into the, into the roots of, of, of the issues surrounding woodland creation and, and, and carbon capture and so on. And it never got any further than famous people talking about trees they like. <laughs> I mean, that's as far as it got. And, it, and, and I tried my, my utmost to get onto that yes, program. Yes, you're a famous and, and person. For other people. They could have asked you to for your to, to, Yes, exactly. To get on and actually sort of bring some of the other <laughs> issues into play and talk about some of the conflicts. You know, let's air some of those conflicts that are out there. But it never got beyond the, the amenity planting, the community planting, which is all great. You know, I've, I've not got anything against it. But it is, it is, you know, it's peripheral stuff. It's not going to achieve the things that we think it will. We talk about planting trees to capture carbon and solve the climate emergency. Well, you know, it's, it's a fallacy. It really is. A, you couldn't, you know, with that kind of planting, you couldn't possibly do enough amenity community planting to make the smallest dent into the, 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 car, the, the CO2, the carbon problem that we have. So, I do have a problem with mainstream media, and, and particularly what should be what, what should be you know, some of the more um, educated mainstream media, and their refusal to dig into even the most, the, you know, to dig into any of the issues that, that are a little bit controversial beyond planting trees and protecting woodland. So, I think we have a problem in, in, in as much as 
the general public, I think, think we're achieving something that we're not achieving. And this, and it will come out in the wash later on. And everyone will wonder, well, you know, we, why, why is this not happening? We thought we'd planted these trees. We thought we'd solved the problem. But actually, we need to look at... We need to look at the science, we need to look at the data and what can actually be achieved by planting trees and managing woodland. And then also look at the, the facts and figures around what extra can be achieved by growing larger, faster growing, more productive trees and then locking up that carbon and then offsetting the need to actually produce more emissions by producing building materials that are heavy in carbon. So that, that, you know, there's a, whole, there's a whole discussion that needs to be had, needs to be aired, and maybe by doing that, people would have a better understanding of what the issues actually are. And, and ultimately, you know, mainstream media, I think, has to play a part in that. Andrew, you wanted to say something then? Yes, I think policy changed in 1985 when the broadleaf policy was in, introduced, and that very much followed on from a post-war period of about 30-odd years, 40 years of conifer planting where we were trying to kind of um, create a, a timber resource and you know as often at that time it was a little bit unsophisticated wasn't really perhaps thought through very carefully but has definitely provided the resource that we are now using if if that hadn't happened I don't think we'd have a timber industry in this country at all right now when the tax concessions got taken off uh, and there was a move away from, you know, it was the flow country plantings, which were, you know, rather in a, very inappropriate at the time. And that cre- created a change in policy towards, uh, away from conifers and towards broadleaves. Um, and the tax concessions came off and, and the, uh, the, the, the woodland creation at that time, the post-war woodland creation, I think just stopped dead in its tracks. Um, and we've we've had a period of time since 1985 with this change of policy, uh, which has resulted in you know these small bits and bobs of, of rather unsatisfactory plantings happening since then, which haven't really worked. Um, we haven't reviewed any of that. We haven't really, as a country, looked at that and said, "Oh, okay, did either of them work?" Well, the post the post war plantings may not have worked brilliantly well in terms of you know, landscape, but they have worked fantastically well in terms of, of supplying and creating a timber industry that we now want. Uh, has the broadleaf planting policy worked? I, I would say it's fundamentally failed because of the issues that Tom's alluded to about, you know, trees not performing very well, squirrels dam- heavily damaging many or the vast majority of these plantations or woodlands that were, you can't call them plantations, woodlands that were planted. And I think the role of government in there is to look at that and acknowledge the truth of it and then come up with something that enables us to go forward in, in a much more informed and sophisticated way. And there, se- there seems to be a reluctance to do that. I thought you were going to say, no, there's no role for government. Keep, keep them out of all of this. Um, I think government, I, I don't like government interfering too much but I think they do have yeah, no they do they definitely have a role they have to set policy I mean that's what that's why we we vote people you know our politicians in to set policy they have to do that they have to provide you know you provide public money to do things that otherwise wouldn't happen that's that's the point of a lot of public money is to make things happen that you want to happen as a government um, and you know that goes back to sort of 
pump priming plantings on farm, marginal farms, uh, helping a f uh, the farmer stay on the land because he can't make a living out of uh, perhaps sheep production as they did uh, in, in the past and tree planting will become part of that but you've got to help that process. And then it's about how your regulator, your government regulator, uh, reacts to proposals to plant. So of course government has a role in the whole thing. What we don't want them doing is stopping the process because uh, they're too bureaucratic or the, the emphasis is too much in the wrong direction or in not taking the long-term view of what has happened in the past and how we might learn from that to go forward. Government's actually not brilliant at that. And of course, what we don't want to do also is just, as we were seeing in the last election, get caught into this kind of you know, war of who's going to plant more trees, which then becomes some kind of unhelpful political football rather than helping create a productive and attractive industry in the future. Tom, you've given evidence, I think, haven't you, to various parliamentary groups, inquiries, investigations. I'm not quite sure what I should call them. But... Yeah, I'm not sure I'd call it evidence. I think I had a pretty good rant, <laughs> if that counts as evidence. But you've, you've argued, I think, if, if, if I'm picking up on the message from, from Andrew, you've argued for government making better policy and also... Uh, regulating and funding in a more enlightened way. I'm struggling to find the right word here, but... Even-handed, even I think, is what we want. Even-handed, yeah. I like that. That's better. Yeah. Um, well, yes, I mean, my... my the, the, the focus of my case was... Um, was around the, 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 the understanding or the acceptance and the honest acceptance that planting trees to absorb carbon dioxide is not an end in itself you know it, it is a benefit of planting trees absolutely because we you know we know how we know how trees and plants work but it's not an end in itself and it will never achieve that end if that is your only aim and also to really make the point ba based on data that is being collected and and, and i believe that um, um banger is about to release a, a report on this as well is that that actually the, the the big benefits when it comes to um, carbon reduction because the, the, I think the issue you know when it comes to carbon the, the the honest representation of it is that we cannot absorb our way out of a problem we have to stop emitting and one of the biggest emitters in the world is construction and buildings and energy within buildings and, and you know you, you guys at Wood Knowledge Wales know this very well so what part can we play in the forestry world and in the, in the timber world to reduce emissions, not just to absorb emissions? And what we can do is we can replace carbon-intensive materials with biomaterials that do not create or cause such emissions. So when we're looking at what a woodland can do in terms of carbon benefit, you know, we're missing two-thirds of the benefit if we don't think about utilising timber from those woodlands. And that was really the, the, the big point I made to government. And, and I think they, they do have a part to play in it because you know, they're the only organisation that can take a national view of these things, that can create policy. And I also think you know, they, they have, this government has created a policy void through Brexit and they've now got to fill it. 
And it, there is an opportunity there, and there's a positive opportunity to fill it with something that I'm going to say is better than the common agricultural policy. I'm sure there are many farmers out there that probably shout at me for saying that, but, but from the perspective of, of, of forestry and the timber industry, I think I can say better than the common agricultural policy. And to, to fill it with policy that encourages a better balance of land use. And, and I just, you know, as Andrew alluded to earlier, it, it is about landscape and it is about a, a, a mix and a matrix of these different land uses. But they're the only people that can do that through the policy and regulation, and it is about getting that balance. Um, and I, now I know in, you know, in, in Wales, you have this strange situation where on one hand, the government wants to support you know, a greener construction industry and, and wants to use more homegrown timber for that. But on the other hand, the regulatory, the arm of the government is preventing woodlands and forests from being planted. So, you know, government needs to, 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 to join up their approach better in the future. But, but I do think, you know, I, I, I feel relatively positively about the government we have and, and, and the sort of views they voice when it comes to landscape and when it comes to meeting net zero by 2050, which, you know, I think is, is, is really important. And the government has a legal responsibility to do that now. And so there's then got to be a very grown-up discussion about how we do that and, and within our industry what we can add to that. It's probably worth at this point, David, just referring to the Woodland Carbon Code and context of that. Oh, this bit yeah, of go on. Talk, talk about that, Andrew. Well, because it, it kind of... It, by and large, it's a good thing, but its problem is it only looks at the carbon that's sequestered by the trees when they're growing it, it it cannot and does not look at the substitution effect or the embedding of carbon in in the final products so that issue that tom's been talking about of um, you know if we only look at sequestering carbon and we don't look at substitution and embedding of carbon we're missing the whole picture and the woodland carbon code um encourages that problem or, 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 or exacerbates that problem. And that therefore uh, encourages landowners, which I was referring to earlier, about planting broadleaves on a long rotation, on a non-management non regime, non-thin regime, in order to maximize the carbon, because that's how they maximize their income uh, from the sale of carbon from that planting. And that just isn't sensible. So although I support the Woodland Carbon Code, um, you have to take a view on it yourself about how you achieve these different elements. So when we're doing most of our plantings that we're registering the Woodland Carbon Code, they are predominantly uh, coniferous. Um, and, you know, I've discuss with my clients and my owners about how we're, how we're trying to look at a different, you know, a number of income streams over the future. You know, timber, sale of timber will be one, uh, carbon may be a, a, another, and, a, and there could be others as well. Um, so we are making that decision when we go into uh, the Woodland Carbon Code, and we are selling carbon uh, for a shorter period and getting less money for it. But you can see if, if you didn't take that view, if you only took the carbon view, it's encouraging you to plant woods 
which are non-productive. That is really that is really counterintuitive. Is the answer then to I don't know is is the Woodland Carbon Code up for review anytime soon? I think it. I think the difficulty with it is it's about these international treaties and how they're allowed to measure things. Okay. So when they're discussing things at these large, you know, Kyoto and Paris and, and so on and so forth, my understanding is, and I might need to be corrected on this, is that, you know, looking at the, the carbon life cycle is just all too difficult and all too complicated. So the only bits that you're kind of allowed to measure are the, the, the carbon that you're, the trees are sequestering. And believe me, that's a complicated enough uh, calculation when you when you register schemes under the Woodland Carbon Code. It isn't straightforward. And if you had to add in all these other things as well, I, maybe they just don't view it as A, practical, and B, conforming with, the, with these uh, treaty obligations. But what it has done is it's kind of skewed... It skewed the picture too much away from seeing seeing the whole thing, and and I know certain organisations, and I think Woodland Knowledge Wales has been part of this, at looking at carbon life cycles and trying to measure that, uh, and maybe in time we will get a better understanding of all of that, and we will become a bit more sophisticated about it. But in and you know that point you alluded to in Welsh government about they can't join up the dots between growing timber and using it you know is disappointing but it but it is true I I I was going to say I I just can't help thinking that the um the woodland carbon code is going to is going to create some very perverse outcomes yeah um because you know grants so often do um and and this one it just for me you know, theoretically, yes, I can see it kind of makes sense. Although, as Andrew pointed out, actually, theoretically, if you look at it in the round, it doesn't make sense because it, it dissuades you from removing any carbon from the woodland when, you know, practically and theoretically, if you were to remove some carbon and then absorb some more carbon, surely that's a benefit yeah. rather than, you know, once, you, once you've grown that woodland and you packed it with broad leaves... And you and you don't thin it, and you can't take anything out of it. Then that's you know where do you go from there? You've then mm. reached at some point you reach a maximum carbon absorption, and then and then you're finished. Whereas if you start actually rotating it, taking some carbon out, locking it up in the urban environment, and absorbing more, I mean it's just you know, logically makes sense. But but the perverse outcome is that it has encouraged a landowner to grow um, potentially the wrong trees in the wrong place, massively overstock it, not manage it, not thin it, and, and end up with God knows what in, in 50, 100 years' time. Is anyone calling this out and saying, look, this, this was a very well-intentioned uh, attempt at, uh, at acknowledging various things, but, but maybe it, it will lead to some, as you say, Tom, perverse outcomes? Is, is anybody saying maybe we need to tweak what we've got or change what we've got i i don't know as you understand no, I, I mean, i've I'm been in various sure. conferences and i know this is this is acknowledged okay uh but whether whether it's being fed into high level discussions i i don't know i was going to say aren't we getting um environmental land management schemes coming our way in wales 
you're getting them in England, Tom, or you've got them in England? Uh, well, not yet. I think we're, we're, we're at the moment we are sort of bridging, the, the, isn't it, the sustainable farming initiative, is it, I think, that comes first? Uh, no. Um, so elms won't come in for another three or four years yet. So we're in England, we're still working under the countryside stewardship scheme. Um, uh, and in Wales, we're working under the Glastier schemes. We, we don't have a, an elms or a stewardship equivalent for, for woodlands in Wales at the moment. That, that may come in, in due course. So um, elms is, and maybe the Welsh equivalent, is looking about how you, you fund or you, or you bring public money into paying for this public goods the the definition of public goods is you know is 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 relatively uh, defined you know uh in terms of what it is it is around carbon uh it uh, air quality uh, flood alleviation water quality landscape um the problem with it is how do you measure it and how do you show that you're getting public benefit from your public money, uh, your public investment of public money. And I think that is going to be a huge challenge. Mm. Do we want to spend a, a little bit of time talking about this notion of public good? Have either of you got any thoughts about the use of that kind of terminology? I, mean, I, I have thoughts on it. I, I, don't, I probably don't know technically what the definition is, as Andrew does, within, within policy development. Um, but I think what I would say is I think I think we all probably think we know what public good means, but I bet if we wrote all wrote down a list, we would end up with different things on that list. And certainly, you know, we've talked about various different organisations with different focuses when it comes to land use. There would be a whole range of what different organisations believe are public goods, and I think trying to balance all of these is going to be phenomenally diff- difficult. I think there are there are some obvious things that will either help us to avoid the crisis we're in, the environmental crisis we're in, whether that's biodiversity or climate change, and protect our quality of life. I think we you know we talk about reducing greenhouse gas, gas emissions. You can't really argue that that's not for public good. I think providing healthy food locally. I think would be hard to argue with. Protecting soil and water would be hard to argue with, although hard to measure. I do think that planting of trees, though, is not so clear-cut, and I think that's what we've really been discussing today. Um, you know, there, there, there are plenty of examples of claims that trees, that planting trees are for public good, while others would argue that, in fact, they harm public good by impacting other flora and fauna such as ground nesting birds um, or in some cases one would argue that planting trees would interfere with our ability to produce food so I think certainly once you get into tree planting and forestry it becomes a lot more murky as to what public good is and it will be very difficult I think to come to a consensus around that so I think at that point public good then becomes a matter of opinion and culture and even religion and ideology, and certainly with the get, once it gets into the mainstream media, those things will start to have an influence on the discussion. Andrew? Yes, I think the move in that direction, you can understand the logic of it. 
Um, I, I think the challenge that government has has set itself is probably too difficult. And I think what we will see is, um, you know, we have a very constrained, very bureaucratic methodology for handing out public money into the rural sector at the moment, you know, which is administered through Rural Payments Agency in England, Rural Payments Wales in Wales. And, you know, frankly, it's a complete nightmare. Uh, and everybody recognises that, that it's a nightmare. And I think the the thinking is that we're going to move away from that to a much more open, much more kind of relaxed way of uh, investing public money into the rural sector through this delivery of public goods. My my real fear is that it will be too ambitious. Uh, and then after five or ten years of doing it, there will be questions asked about what it's delivered, whether it's been a good use of public money. And then I can see it all swinging back again to a heavily constrained, heavily bureaucratic system after that, which will be you know, e equally unsuccessful. And that ability, which is again role of government, to take more of a, a middle road, not try and conquer every single concept that they that they want to pay for it's just too difficult try and engage the you know the private sector more in paying for some of those um, elements of public good and, um, you know water quality is the obvious one for the, the water industries and they are looking at that about how they invest in certain activities which um, enable them to save money in in the treatment of water. So I think that will happen a, a bit more. But you know how you how you decide what is a good use of public money for landscape is, you know, I think the word being used is beauty. It's almost impossible because everybody will have a different view. Mm. And my fear is that the whole thing will just get either either there will be a sense of money being wasted or it'll get jammed in in some uh, problem where, where nobody can agree on how to take it forward. So I think we're in for difficult times on all of this. And I think we just need to get some simplicity into, into the whole thing. Try not to be over ambitious in what we're trying to achieve. And maybe we might be a bit more successful then. Going back to planting, you've talked about pests and disease pathogens and their impact on various species. Do you think the growing concern that there is about the impact of these things means that we ought to, as well as improving the way we manage what we plant, we should be thinking about planting other species that might be more resistant to things like disease and might offer us new potential uses when that tree is felled? Yeah, of course is the answer to that, but... We don't have enough knowledge. Okay. Post-war, again, there was a lot of work done, particularly on conifers, when we were trying to find mostly uh, conifer species from, from the west coast of America that we could grow here successfully. And uh, there was quite a lot of research done. We then fell upon the wonders of Sitka spruce, and a lot of that development work and research work stopped and of course, because in those days it wasn't digitally held, it was all held on, you know, in, in paper records. And a lot of those records got destroyed. So we lost a lot of that information. So what I'm saying is, yes, we do need to be planting a greater range of species. 
But if we are planting that greater range of species to make our woods more resilient and to reduce our risk, we need to know what we're planting and why we're planting it and how to grow it. And we don't know that. And my fear is that, again, it's all a bit too easy uh, to say, oh, you need to be planting a range of species and why aren't you planting Macedonian pine and, uh, and why aren't you planting, um, you know, species of trees from uh, come from more southerly latitudes which are going to react better or grow better uh, in, in what our climate looks like in the future. Yeah, maybe, but what and how? Mm. And if if we're looking to reduce risk, what is the point of planting unknown species of unknown provenance that's likely to increase our risk? So work needs to be done there. And that's, again, a role that government needs to play. It needs to be funding that whole process and speeding it along as quickly as it can so that we do understand what we might plant and, and how we might grow it. In the meantime, my view on it is, yes, indeed, widen your species that you're planting, but don't don't increase that number to a point where um, you're likely to fail. Uh, Tom, you got any, any thoughts on that? Yeah, um, I mean, I can't get quite as granular as Andrew in terms of specific species and, and what we do and don't know about them, but I think in general terms... Um, you know, there's a lot of talk about native species, and I think possibly the most overused phrase I hear these days in relation to forestry is planting the right tree in the right place, as if there's, there's, an, there's, there's an obvious answer to what that tree would be in any given place. Um, you know, I think the best, the best description of, 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 a, of an answer for that from, from a, a forester that, that I interviewed was, well, you know, the one that grows. Um, now we do. We have a. We have a. We, you know, we have lots of problems with with what we term as our native species and the, those that have naturally inhabited this island since after the last ice age. You know, as as I mentioned before, that they, they almost all of them are racked with one or other kind of disease or pest, pest or pathogen Whoa. that's being uh, you know jollied along by a bit of climate change. So. You know, yes, we can we can stick with just planting our native species, but we're going to find that a lot of them are going to fail, and they are going to die. But it doesn't have to be a binary choice, as many of these things are often presented between native or non-native. I mean, we've got you know plenty of naturalised species such as sycamore, which okay, the squirrels love it, and that is a problem for foresters, but. You know, any gardener will tell you that sycamore loves growing in this country mm. and would happily reproduce everywhere and anywhere. So there, there are naturalised species which that seem to be fairly resilient, grow very well and are useful for the timber they can produce further down the line. So, you know, I, I think we should be we should be working really hard, and, and we're, we're doing a bit of work with the the Future Trees Trust when it comes to sycamore, because I think we should be working hard to find strains of these species, um, genetic strains that, that that grow well, that are improved. We should be trying to find strains of species such as as ash and elm, which are more resistant to um, the, the 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 diseases and the, the pathogens that are affecting them. Um, 
and I don't think we should be shy from trying more adventurous species that, that could be more resilient in a warmer climate. And, you know, obviously what Andrew said is, is absolutely true. You can't just go sticking things in the ground and hoping for the best without some kind of trials, um, which, you know, do take years to perform. Um, but, but ultimately, I come back to how I started, which, you know, ultimately the, the right tree in the right place is the one that happily grows and prospers in the future. When I was a chair of um, Wales Forest Business Partnership, which Wood Knowledge Wales kind of was, was part of and then grew out of subsequently, on this theme, we ran a, a, a day down at the Breckther Forest Garden. And in the 50s, a rather unprepossessing lump of hill was dedicated to planting about 85 different species of trees to see how they got on, as it were. So we had a day there and we had the wood scientists and the silviculturalists and, and everybody kind of, you know, the, the, the processors, everybody in the whole supply chain there. And we went round to have a look at how these species had done. Management had been a bit patchy over the years, but, you know, by and large, it was all still there. And actually, we came away at the end of the day scratching our heads saying, actually, we don't really know. <laughs> uh, there were one or two things in there we thought oh we could probably be a little bit more ambitious about how we planted Douglas fir you know I think the um, Amorica spruce had kind of done okay but nothing too fantastic redwood had sequoia had done well but you try and sell that nobody wants to buy it yeah so it it wasn't hugely encouraging which is why it goes back to this this my point earlier of yes fine but we need evidence. We can't just guess at all of this. If we're going to succeed in persuading people to, um, for example, use more timber in construction, are we secure in the knowledge that we've got sufficient supply of material that we can use in the construction industry in, the, in terms of the timber that we can envisage being able to fell over the next sort of 10, 15, 20 years? Or are we going to have to continue to import large amounts of, of the timber that we're using? Tom, have you got any thoughts on this? Yeah, sure. I mean, we're going to have to import more because we are, um, by all calculations, coming somewhere close to peak wood supply in this country. Peak wood. Peak wood, after which it drops off quite significantly because, as Andrew pointed out earlier, um, we stopped planting um, conifers, particularly um, in the 1980s. Um, in Scotland, obviously, that has picked up again in, in more recent times. But we, we stopped planting any wood. And, and, as, and as I mentioned earlier, in terms of uh, broadleaf, we've not planted anything of any use for the last 30 years. And, um, you know, a lot of our broadleaf woods have been quite degraded. Um, so absolutely, um, we are going to have to import more. I don't, I don't think we're going to have to do a great deal to persuade people to use more timber in construction. I can see that happening anyway. And I think people are already persuaded of it. We, as a timber supply industry, just need to be able to produce the kinds of products that fulfill the needs. Now, there's, there's you know, it's a lot of good work going on in, in the universities and in industries to use wood fibre um, and, and, and timber itself, but in, in much smarter ways. 
you know, I'm talking obviously about things like lamination. I'm talking about things like modification. Um, I mean, uh, hopefully you'll allow me at this point just to have a little plug for, for what we've yeah. been doing here, which is... Tell, tell us about modification. Yeah, so for the last five years, um, we've really been working on what is a project to modify British hardwoods at the moment. We, we will be looking at um, some of the softwoods later on, but to, to thermally modify British hardwoods. And this came out of many, many conversations that, that I'd been involved with, um, with BRE and then later grown in Britain and Trada about the poor state of our broadleaf woodlands particularly. And what came out of it really was that if we could create a commercial demand for the timber within those woodlands and create a value for those woodlands, it would then hopefully encourage the owners of those woodlands to manage, to increase the size of the woodlands, to replant, um, with a view that there was a, uh, um, you know, a commercial outcome for them further down the line. So we started looking at what could be done with British wood, and there was lots of, lots of silly ideas about building veneer plants and making doors to compete with China and things, which would never have come to anything. But one of the ideas that came to the surface was modification, and specifically thermal modification, which is what the Scandinavians had sort of pioneered at the back end of last century. And really, uh, it turned out that, that, that there wasn't much to learn because it was being done in most other parts of the world. And interestingly, actually, there was a research paper that Trada had from the 1950s where they were already talking about modifying British wood. So we're a bit slow off the mark. Anyway, we, we over the last five years, have sort of developed that, working in conjunction with um, a French modification plant to thermally modify, particularly ash, sycamore and poplar, and turn what are fast-grown, relatively unstable, non-durable species that don't have... Um, particularly strong markets um, and turn them into something that is very desirable which is a stable very durable piece of wood that can be used outdoors i.e for cladding or decking which are both quite big markets and it has proved to be very successful and, and the species have responded to it very very well we've had lots of testing done on it and and you know the, the products fulfill a, a niche and a demand in the market and as such they are selling um, we will, through this year, we are installing the modification plants in this country, so it'll be the first one in this country, so we can actually start doing a bit more experimentation with some other species. But, you know, it's things like that. It, it, it's about taking the timber and looking at the markets out there and trying to work out how you can then turn that timber with a bit of clever technology or a bit of clever modification into a product that fulfills that market need. You know, we, we really... We're past the point where you can cut up British wood and, and you know, attempt to sell it to furniture makers in any kind of volume with the bark hanging off it so they can make something nice out of it. You know, there, there just isn't the industry out there for that anymore of any, mm. of any size. So we've got to be able to turn wood into a usable product really for some element of construction. And, and I understand, um, I was talking to an architect about a project um, just yesterday, actually, which is going to be, as I understand it, the first project that's going to use CLT made in this country. So wow. that was pretty exciting news, and I think that's something connected to Napier. Um, so you know, th there's lots of good stuff going on, but but you know, the big issue is if you want industry to invest in technology to make these products, that industry has got to have some kind of 
sight on the fact that the raw material is going to be available in 5, 10, 20, 30 years' time. Yeah. And, that, and that's, you know, the, the data, unfortunately, tells us that wood is not going to be there in the quantities that it is now. And that's a problem. Andrew, peak wood. Is Tom making this up, do you think? <laughs> I wish he was. I wish he was making it up. No, he isn't. I mean, you, you generally have to do the maths, don't you? You know, you, you look at all the planting that went on. We then look at the fact that planting just stopped. Well, surprise, surprise, the curve drops away in terms of supply uh, in 20, 20 to 30 years' time. It's not surprising. It had to happen. And of course, the other thing is that when we're restocking now, we don't restock the productive area 100%, 100%. So, you know, you take 100% productive uh, timber off, you're probably only putting, you know, 75 or 80% productive area back, if that. And of course, you know, where you've got plantations on ancient woodland sites, i.e. they are conifer and were previously broadleaf, policy encourages you to put them back into broadleaf. So that's, again, loss of more productive area. You've got wind farms coming in, which are taking productive forests out. So it's all going in the in the wrong direction. And, um, you know, that that needs to radically change. And are we, uh, hopefully, we're at the cusp of joining those um, elements of the supply chain up better. So we realize that if we want to use our own timber, if we want um, investment in, you know, what are expensive processes, you know, CLT, it does not come cheap, um, and I suspect modification doesn't either, then, you know, those investors have to have confidence in the supply chain and confidence that government uh, will will back all of that. And you know, it wasn't that many years ago when, oh, probably 50... Uh, maybe 10 or 15 years ago in Wales where we were told we were having a 50-year forestry vision and, you know, it was all going to be us heading towards these um, sunlit uplands in terms of, of production and, and, and so on. It never happened. It never happened. And, you know, governments that make 50-year promises, uh, you know you know, you can't trust that. Um, so we do need, you know, we are in a long-term industry. We do need long-term vision. We need long-term investment. We need confidence. Uh, I think the technology is there. I mean, this, the talk about better use of, of our timber products has been around for many years, as, as Tom suggested. And, you know, we were talking about, you know, doing experiments on, on glue lamb and, uh, and CLT was being talked about some years, as was heat treatment of, of, of timber, you know, 15 15 odd years ago, uh, 20 years ago, and it takes quite a long time for all that to come to come about. But you know, my bigger big bigger worry is not so much in um, you know this added value use of our timber. Is will we even have will even just straightforward sawmills turning out our four by twos and uh, and you know C16 construction timber? Will they invest going forward if they don't see the supply? On what basis would they? You know, when they might invest now because they see uh, a 20-year period when we should be okay. But if you want to write that your investment off over, you know, 10 or 15 years or whatever it is, 
So in 10 or 15 years' time, will they be making that investment? And, what, and, and on what basis, if the timber's not there? I'm conscious that we may have skipped over a few things. Are there any particular things you'd, you'd like to talk about that I've not given you the chance to talk about? Tom? Well, you touched on language a bit in, in previous podcasts as well. And I, and I do wonder whether part of, of our problem in, in, in trying to trying to get a, a realistic message out there is, is in the language. And I wonder whether when we use words like manage and productive, you know, th- this all comes across as being a bit commercial. And I think there is a, then an inherent distrust in commerce because commerce is out to make a profit and therefore that must then have an impact, a negative impact. So, you know, may- maybe there is something in changing the language we use. Um, you know, maybe we ought to be talking about nurturing or sort of taking care of, and these sort of things might, might engender a slightly better reaction. Um, I mean, it might just be window dressing, I don't know, but, but we keep, you know, you hear the same kind of phrases and messages um, being dragged out again and again and again, and they don't break through. They don't break through. I mean, you know, you know they don't break through because they're not picked up by mainstream media at all. Whereas, you know, other organisations are able to make much clearer claims and messages about protection. And, you know, and that really chimes because people think they can understand that. It's very simple. You protect something, you keep it there, you keep it as it always has been. And that makes us all feel quite safe because change is, is inherently unnerving. But, you know, we, we, can't, we can't honestly give a clear message. You know, if we're going to be honest and we're we're going to try and um, create a level of trust, we have to be honest about what their message is. And it it is a bit more complex um, and a bit more nuanced. But I I wonder whether we ought to collectively try and create a language that is a little softer and a little bit less commercial to try and get our message out there. Oh, very interesting. Andrew, any thoughts on on language? I mean, that is very interesting. Interesting. I mean, it, you know, yeah, I'm sure you're right. Um, so, of course, you know, the environmentalists, by definition, are able to use language that might go down better. And there, there may be this distrust of business and commerce. It, I was thinking this morning, actually, when they're talking about the budget and, you know, Rishi's big problems of how he's going to claw back some of this public uh, you know the, the the deficit, and I think well, it is very interesting, isn't it, that over the last years, when we've effectively had to switch off industry or parts of industry, how catastrophic that has turned out to be so quickly. I mean, it's not surprising, but it has. And how much is taken for granted by us as a as a nation uh, and the public about? how things get paid for, how we pay for our public services. You know, where does the tax come from? You know, it only comes from people or industries who generate it. And, you know, the fact that we, we seem to fail to understand that in some ways, I mean, we're not stupid, you know, the pe- people aren't stupid, but, but there seems to be a willingness to ignore that fact. And when we talked about farmers as well, you know, our, our landscape is covered in farmland. And we just accept the fact that the farmers, um, you know, 
manage their land productively for an income. And I guess we accept that because we also work on the assumption that they are growing the food that we're going to eat. But, but there doesn't seem to be that sort of level of distrust when it comes to agriculture. And maybe agriculture has just been presented in a better way. Do you think so? I mean, I think everybody, a lot of the people think farmers are just, you know, a load of old winchers <laughs> um, who, um, uh, you know, take public money. Uh, I mean, we had a minister in Wales who, who used to call agricultural subsidies the dole. Yeah. You know, that's how he viewed it. Yeah. He just viewed it as farmers being paid the dole. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, frankly, it's a bit hard to argue against, yeah. against some of that. And if you look at, you know, what what actually presses buttons and gets media coverage, you know, it's that guy uh, in the lakes, James Rebanks, I think his name is, you know, who's um, writing books about going back to traditional methods of farming. Mm. So everybody wants this image of this, you know, wonderful bucolic landscape, which, you know, they don't want to see big combine. And we get that where we're doing timber harvesting. You know, the amount of stick that we get from neighbours, from timber lorries uh, going down uh, small country lanes uh, is extraordinary. Yeah, but, but Andrew, I mean, how, how many people pull over on the side of the road to talk to a combine driver and, and, and mm. complain to that driver that they're felling the, 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 the wheat or the barley? You know, and when, and when, the, when the hay bales are driven down the road and, and, yeah. the, and there's hay going everywhere and covering you know covering the road and and there's you know it's an accepted part of being in in um in the countryside well i mean i was just saying a little story i remember when we were we were uh, uh, um, an area of woodland up in shropshire where we were doing some infrastructure improvements i mean very very attractive woodland actually and lots of informal public access in there and we were just taking a few trees out to widen some uh, access roads and so on and I got accosted by this this woman there, and you know, why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? And you know, right? Okay, I'll spend five minutes and try and explain all this to you, and um, explain about you know the biodiversity benefits of what we're doing, and the fact we need timber, and and so on and so forth. And uh, she said, it, um, "It's just like Auschwitz here, with you deciding who lives and who dies." And I said to her, I said, Madam, at this point, you have overstepped the mark. And, you know, that is just not an acceptable thing to say to me. And I'm ending this conversation right now. Wow. And she looked a little bit sheepish and shuffled off. But, you know. I, I can remember talking to a farmer about whether he'd, he'd be interested in growing trees on, on his land. And I think I might have even used the language of, of marginal land. But he was reluctant. He was quite resistant, in fact, and said, look, uh, we're farming. You know, we're, we're principally a dairy farm. We're producing milk. We're producing some, some beef. Um, it, it should all be about food security. Why should I give up some of my productive land or any of my land um, to, to growing trees? So for them, food security uh, was, was something that they were alive to thinking about all day long, the notion of timber security, the fact that we're importing yeah. the vast bulk of what we use, didn't didn't seem to to feature. And then, of course, when I when I looked into a bit of the data on on meat, <laughs> I realised that most of the sheep 
uh, that we uh, that we have in Wales. Most of the lamb that we produce is exported. Mm. Most of the beef is exported. Yeah. So I suddenly thought, where's the argument about food security? I don't know. Yeah, that, it's a very it's a complicated argument there. So you've got whole cultural things going on of you know people have sweated uh, blood to make their land more productive. Um, you know, there's, we're still in the generation of farmers who can remember grubbing out hedges and trees and, and breaking their backs to make the land more productive. And we're now talking about planting trees back on that land. So there's a, there's a really strong emotional okay. argument yeah. about why they don't want to do that. Then, of course, on top of that, you've had governments throw money at agriculture uh, incredibly generously for a very long time which they haven't done at uh, forestry um, and then you've got on top of that you've got this problem of you know forestry didn't make money for quite a long time it is now more so but you know we had the whole period of the 90s um, uh, well, you know best part of 25 30 years when timber prices were low uh, returns of forestry were low uh, People couldn't see how to make money on it. Uh, it. If you planted trees, it devalued your land. Uh, there were no carbon arguments at that point. Uh, we had you know, uh, large amounts of cheap timber coming in from various sources, I mean, a lot of it from uh, ex-Soviet um, bloc countries like you know, the Baltic states and so on. So you know, that isn't all that long ago. So it's not surprising that people, you know, the landowners, view it, you know, rather sceptically. I just want to end, really, by asking you how optimistic you are, given that we've had quite a pessimistic conversation in some ways, in terms of what the future might, might hold. How, how optimistic are you both uh, uh, about the future? Uh, Tom, first. Um, I, th I think I'm, I'm split in half um, when it comes to future supply of British timber. I think I'm probably neutral. I mean, I, 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 I have significant worries that the fifth generation of our family are going to be able to do what I've been able to do in the previous three generations when it comes to converting British timber, British trees into timber, because um, I just wonder whether whether it's going to be there in the quantity and the quality that's required um, to, to, to support a business like ours. Um, I'm, 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 I'm optimistic that the political discussion has come round to landscape and particularly to tree planting, even if, even if as we've said, we need to go deeper than that. I... Uh, you know, not in any way a big supporter of Brexit, but I, I, I do think, as far as I can tell, the only silver lining I've come across is that we get to rethink about land use in this country, and I think that's a positive. Um, I, I'm, I'm very optimistic about the role that timber is going to play going forward in construction, in creating uh, environments that are far cleaner and um, have less impact. Um, now whether that's British timber or imported timber, we will find out. But I'm, I'm very encouraged that, that timber in itself will play a much, much bigger part going forward. Thanks for that. Andrew? Yeah, no, I think if, um, you know, if I have my cup half full in front of me uh, rather than my cup half empty, I, I think we can be very 
uh, positive and optimistic. I mean, bearing in mind, I'm you know coming towards the end of my working career now, and I've spent most of my working career with forestry being, you know, very much the poor cousin. Really, um, it's on the agenda now. We can grow good timber in this country. You know, we've got the right climate, we've got the right soils for it. There is no reason why we can't produce it. We've got very exciting technology, and 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 Tom is investing in that at Vaston. Uh, which enable us to add value to our own timber. So, yeah, of course there will be challenges. There are always going to be challenges. I mean, we'd be naive to think that there wouldn't be. But from from where I'm sat now, having you know worked in the industry for a lot of years, it is more positive now than it has ever been during my working career. Wow, that's a really positive way to end, isn't it? So, listen, can I thank you for all the time you've given up? Thank you. Yep, okay, thanks. That was easily the longest recording we've done, and certainly the longest podcast. Whether you've listened to it in one stint or in parts, I hope you found it interesting, informative, maybe even provocative. There are other podcasts in the series. I can promise they'll be shorter, but no less interesting, obviously. You can find links to them on the Wood Knowledge Wales website, where you can find out more about the Homegrown Homes project too. I'm David Hedges. Thanks for listening.